Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Hey, we're back. I'm so excited to see you all. I've been looking forward to this. If you are new this year, know you are very welcome. This is a study that we do more or less during the school year. So we begin in September, we end in May, maybe the first of May. And this year, we're going to be building on what we did last year. Last year, we studied the Gospel of Luke. This year, we are going to be looking at Acts of the Apostles. And we'll talk a little bit about the relationship between Luke and Acts in just a minute. But a little bit of housekeeping before we begin. We are going to be using a book by N.T. Wright, Acts 1 and 2. It's a two-part book series this year. It's not just a single book. And in essence, we're going to be doing one in the fall, two in the spring. It's not perfectly divided that way, but pretty close. Chris Love in the bookshop here at St. Michael has copies of these books. They do not look like this. I've had this book for about a decade, and so they are new and fancier and orange or something. Or do they look like this? Ha! All right, what I saw online was not this color, so good for her. So you've got the retro version. That's great. So you can pick up a copy in the bookshop. Also, at both doors of the chapel, we've got little tables with sign-up sheets. And so if you received an email from Susan reminding you about this class, you are on our list, which is great. If you did not receive an email notifying you of this class sometime in the last couple days, then we'd love for you to join our email list. And so please stop on your way out, put your name and email address on that list, and just in case random things happen and we have to make a change in the schedule, that's our way to let you know that. And so do sign up for that if you will. And as you do that, you will notice there are bookmarks on the tables. These bookmarks have the schedule for each Wednesday through the end of this calendar year. And on each date, you see that either we're studying a particular chapter or we are not meeting. So for example, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, no Bible study. I know you want to come, but no. And so you have this on your schedule, and December 12th, as you see, is the last Wednesday on this bookmark, will be the last study of this calendar year, and then we'll pick back up after Epiphany, after the first of the year. So let's start with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we ask your presence upon us today. Open us up. Help us put down all that stresses us and troubles us and worries us. Make space for your spirit to fill us up. And as you fill us up, may we be inspired to leave this chapel renewed and refreshed to do the work you've given us to do in the world you love. We hold in our hearts today all those who are in need of your healing touch, those we love and see no longer, and those who simply need to find your presence. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a Bible study. And so my first question is going to be, who brought a Bible? All right, I love it. I do want to note that for some of you, you may not want a physical book. And so on your phones or on your tablets, you can download some really nice apps that help you read the Bible very well. Uversion is one that I like very much. Uversion is great, lots of different translations, and it would be easy for you to use that in this space rather than a physical book. 
but one way or the other, please do bring something with you so that you can track the verses along with us. And in case you forget, you'll see in the pew back in front of you, there should be two Bibles in each pew. So hopefully there aren't really more than two people in each pew that need one on any given Wednesday, and if there are, then just shame each other, and you'll solve that problem. So, the Bible that you should, or that I recommend that you have, is the translation that is the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. That is the version that we officially read in the Episcopal Church. That's the version you will hear read in our worship services. The other version is the NIV, which is also quite good. The NRSV is considered the most accurate translation. The NIV is a very accurate translation that just sort of smooths a few of the rough edges. Occasionally, you find a book in the Bible that just isn't quite as well written as other books, and when it's translated very accurately, it can feel a little disjointed and difficult to read. The NIV takes some of those rough edges and kind of just smooths them out in very small ways so you don't lose the real intent of the author, but you get it a little bit more readable. Those are translations. I'm going to start each year with this stuff, so those of you who heard this last year, sorry. Those are translations, NRSV. There are also paraphrases that are very helpful, and the paraphrase that I recommended to you last year that I'll recommend again is called the message. The message is not a translation. It was written by a very good scholar as a way of helping us understand what is actually happening in the scripture. So again, certain scripture passages are very clear, and it's easy to read. And you'll find that in Acts, it's actually quite easily readable. It's, it's a real—it's actually about one of the easiest ones to read. But others, as we go through the years of this study, might be a bit more dense and opaque. The message, as a paraphrase, changes a lot of the language that you really get the idea of what's going on in the passage. And so ideally, you would read a paraphrase, like the message, get what is going on in the story, right? Really understand the situation in that particular verse or chapter, and then turn to your translation so that you can actually see as accurately as possible what the author wrote. You get the context, and then you get the details. And so the message is also a great companion for all of you as we go through this Bible study. Any questions on that before we keep going? Good. This year we are studying the book of Acts. The book of Acts is part two of the story of Jesus. Part one is the gospel of Luke. The same person wrote Luke and Acts. Luke is really the story of Jesus when he was on earth, and Acts is really the story of what the people who loved Jesus did once he was gone. For us, although Luke is a great story, we need the Gospels for sure, Acts is this unique book in the Bible, unique in all the Bible, that tells us how Jesus' followers created a way of life that kept them close to Jesus now, on earth. For us, we might even say that they created the church, and that for all of us who are connected to the church, we get to see what the very first generation of Jesus' followers did, 
how they made some decisions, how they chose to operate, how they argued amongst one another, right? Nothing new. And how they came to reach certain decisions that changed the future of the church for the last 2,000 years. Acts of the Apostles is a fascinating book. In the New Testament, we really have four sections. The first section is the Gospels. We have four Gospels. Then we've got Acts, which stands alone as its own section of the New Testament. Then we have a whole bunch of letters, most of them written by Paul, but others written by many of the other apostles. And then we've got one more standalone book in Revelation. That's really the structure of the New Testament. And so for us, we're bridging in this year two out of the Gospels and into the creation of the church. If you have yet to read Acts of the Apostles, or maybe it's been a long time since you've read it, this is one that you can just really sit down and read. It's as close to reading like a novel as the Bible gets, all right? It's, it's not a novel, but it's close. And so you really can sit down, read it, and enjoy it. And so it might be a good idea in the next week or so to just take an hour, it wouldn't take but an hour, and just read the whole thing, front to back. It gives you really nice, high-level context. And that way, as we go through each individual chapter, you'll be able to see the forest for the trees. Luke-Acts is most concerned with the way that God has changed our reality forever. It begins with the story of Jesus, and it continues with the way that Jesus has impacted all of the people who seek to follow him. In those different levels, we have the first level, which is the apostles, right? The apostles go and do some stuff, and that's what Acts is. The second level is that it's really just a big story about Jesus and the way that Jesus impacts the world. The third level, which is where I hope we will get to each week just a little bit, is how we actually become part of that story too. So as we study this, I want us to know what the apostles did, decisions they made, but I never want to just stop there. I want you to read this as an invitation for you to actually change the way you live, to become a part of this story yourself. And if that is ever unclear, or if you have questions about how you might be able to do that, then I hope you bring those questions to the group. So here's a quick little question note. Most people are not like me and happy to raise their hand and speak in front of a group. If you find that you've got a question that you would like me to answer, you've got contact cards, the communication cards, in the, in the pews in front of you. Just write those questions down, drop them on the tables on your way out, and I'll be able to bring those questions to the group the following week. And so please do submit questions that way, because many of you may be wondering similar things, and I might be able to merge a particular question into something that touches lots of people. So as we look at chapter 1 of the book of Acts, there are three sections. So open up your Bibles to Acts. Acts is not near the front, so do not start flipping <laughs> from the front. The first part of the first chapter of Acts is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promises that the Spirit is going to come. The second part is Jesus' ascension. That's a biggie. The third part is the selection of Matthias.
So we're going to start with section one, the promise of the Spirit. At the beginning, Luke addresses his book to Theophilus. You may remember that at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, there's another address to Theophilus. Theophilus, in Greek, literally translate to friend of God. So don't read this as a specific person. Although theoretically it could be a specific person, we don't know who this person is. And so I would rather that we not really think about this as Luke writing to a guy, but instead Luke is writing to us. Luke is writing to his friends in Christ, right? All the friends of God that are interested in what went on with Jesus are meant to receive this book. And so this is written to you. It's written to all of us, to Theophilus. Jesus appears at the beginning of this chapter in Jerusalem with the apostles right after his resurrection. So let's put this into context. We all know that at the end of the Gospels, Jesus is crucified, he dies, and he is resurrected. Acts picks up right there after the resurrection. Jesus has been resurrected physically, is with the apostles in Jerusalem, and he finds them sort of hiding out. And he tells them that they are meant to wait and wait for the Spirit. If you look at verse 3 of chapter 1, it says, After his suffering, Jesus presented himself alive to the apostles by many convincing proofs. I love that part. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus finds them waiting in Jerusalem, and he says, good, stay here and wait. And there are two, there are some important notes about this passage. The first, it sets up the chronology of the story. They are anticipating the Pentecost moment. What we remember as Pentecost, when the Spirit comes down on the apostles, is going to happen in chapter 2. Chapter 1 is anticipating that moment. The second thing, though, is I think a message for us. Jesus finds them and tells them, to just be patient and to wait. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were in this situation, I would not want to sit around and wait. I would certainly not want to sit around and wait in Jerusalem. That is just where he was killed. And yet Jesus says, just be patient and just wait. That's really important for us. We love to be busy. We actually think we're supposed to be busy. We often feel like we're not doing enough if we are not accomplishing tasks and checking things off our list. Can I just say as an aside, I don't know if you noticed this, I just saw like 15 different people turn to the person next to them and go, <laughs> right? That's what we all do. <laughs> You're like, yes, I see these pairs of friends in here, like, ah, that's you, right? No, that's all of us. So we are all very much focused on accomplishing tasks, and we feel good, better about who we are when we have done all those things. And yet Jesus says at this moment that is critical, right, he has everyone's attention. Everyone in Jerusalem knows that he just died, 
and they're hearing about his resurrection. And yet he tells them, wait. And what are they waiting for? They're waiting for the inspiration of the Spirit. This is so important for us. Most of us trust, at least we think, that we know the good things to do. And we do those good things, and maybe they are often very good things. But we do them because we think they are, more so than we do them because God's inspired us to do those good things. Now, most of us will not be sitting in a room and have flames of fire drop on our heads. All right, that's a pretty clear sign. I mean, I don't know about you, but if that happened, I'd be like, I got it, all right? <laughs> Most of us, though, have to try a lot harder to hear or feel the inspiration of the Spirit. And yet Jesus tells his followers and us that that's really our job. That's how we follow Jesus best, is to really keep our ears open, keep our hearts and minds open, and when we feel those little nudges, to really chase them, to be ready to feel them. How many of us go about our day, and we are so busy that when we get those little nudges, maybe to call a friend, or maybe to write a note, or maybe to run over there and do that little thing, it never quite hits the top of our priority list because we've got so many other more important things to do. I don't know about you, but I have had— and. Obviously, it's in my role this has happened perhaps more often than, than others. But I've had those moments where I've felt like I should call someone, and if I do, I find out that I really should have for some reason. And a few times, I've not. And that person has died before I talk to them again. Now, that could just be hindsight, but I don't think so. I think we get these little moments sprinkled into our days where they're not big and they're not hard. God rarely hits us over the face. And if we are too, too busy all the time, we'll miss the little opportunities that we have to actually connect with one another. And so what Jesus is really saying to the apostles right here is you think you know, but you don't just yet. And you will really know soon. Now as we continue in the first chapter, we get to Jesus' ascension. Jesus, who has resurrected, takes his apostles out onto a little hill and is lifted up into the air. But before that happens, if you look at verse 6, when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, is the time now when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus replied, it is not for you to know the time or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power from the Spirit, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. Now, let's consider the apostles real fast, where they are in their own lives. They were just doing their thing somewhere, mostly up in Galilee, and Jesus said, hey, you follow me, and they did. They've left their life. They've left their responsibilities, their earthly responsibilities, to follow and learn from this guy. They believe that Jesus is going to restore the kingdom of Israel. So what does that even mean? Here's the context there. Way back when, the promised land was conquered by the Israelites, 
and they established a kingdom. First king, Saul, not that great. Second king, David, his son Solomon was third. Then they had a lot of messy kings that screwed a bunch of stuff up, and they went into exile. They became so weak that they were overrun by some of the other powers in that region. That exile was hugely impactful. It changed Judaism forever. When they finally came back and they rebuilt their temple, they were never quite as strong as they were in the kingdom period. And one by one, all of the bigger powers, think about where they are, right? I think we've talked about this before. Geographically speaking, Israel is right there on the coast of the Mediterranean. It's the land bridge between Asia Minor, so think Turkey, Iran, at the time it would have been Persia, Babylon, those sorts of uh, powers, and down into Africa. Egypt was huge at this point, so was Ethiopia. These economies were much bigger and much more powerful, and Israel was how they got to and from one another. And there's nothing to say about how about Greece and Rome, right? There were big players on the world stage, and Israel just wasn't. And so they were run as vassal states. They might have had a lot of their own people in place, but they were not in charge. Some other bigger power was in charge for generation after generation after generation until this point. The disciples, like many other Jews at that time, are waiting for God to overthrow the other people so that the kingdom of Israel is reestablished. They've been thinking Jesus is doing that. They've been following him around, and they've been totally impressed and very happy with all the healings and the this and the that and whatever, and he was resurrected, which is so nice. But <laughs> Jesus is now when you're going to do the stuff we've been waiting for. That's really what they're saying, right? How about now? So after everything that Jesus did in the gospel, after time and again, the apostles misunderstanding the point and Jesus trying to correct them over and over and over again, here Jesus has resurrected, tells them the Spirit's coming, and they still don't quite get it. What they don't quite get is really what we still have trouble understanding today. You know, we see everything naturally through a worldview. We live in the real world, so to speak, and in that real world, we have to function. And that habit of function in the world makes us see things in a very small way. And the apostles are the same. They just, they see the world in front of them. It's not their fault, it's just human nature. And Jesus is trying to get them to see something more, to see something beyond just what's right in front of them, and they still can't quite get it. And we know they won't really get it until the Pentecost moment. And then everything changes. So when they say, is it now? We know what they're talking about. When Jesus had said this, and as the apostles were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood before them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you will come in the same way as you saw him go. There's a big idea here. The idea of heaven and earth. 
we haven't really talked about heaven in this class. And a few minutes is not enough time to really vet the big idea of what heaven could be. But I'm going to plant a little seed. And many of you are not going to be satisfied with what I'm about to say, so just prepare, and we'll talk more later. Heaven is not this physical place above us. Although many of us, at some point in our lives, I certainly did, assumed heaven is there, hell is there, and we are on earth. Physically. We see in this story this idea of Jesus, what? went up in a cloud. So where'd he go? Because obviously he didn't stop in the clouds, right? I mean, heaven's not in the clouds. So is heaven in our atmosphere? Is it out of our atmosphere? Is heaven sort of on the way to Mars? Probably not really. And so is it farther than Mars? Is it close to another star? Right. And all of a sudden we know as modern people that heaven's not like physically somewhere up there. So then what is this idea of heaven? It's important for us to put ourselves in an ancient mindset. When they talk about heaven, they speak of heaven in a world that is fully enchanted. And by that, what I mean is people back then would have understood that there was a reality they could not see. They often called this magic. They talked about fairies and dragons, and magic, and witches, and demons, and all of these ideas, because there was this real understanding of the world as having a reality we can see, and a parallel reality we cannot. Most of us can't access the other reality, but some people could. That's what you see in the Gospels, when people talk about Jesus as being king of the demons, when he casts out those demons, when he heals people, they just assume he's doing all the magic from the other reality. And they don't quite understand what's really happening. We need to understand that because heaven is not just this physical place. They would have understood heaven as this place they could not see. This reality that they could not understand. And they create a theology very quickly around Jesus being the one who can go back and forth to both. That's how they begin to understand Jesus is this, this entity, this God. That's why Jesus has to be fully God, because he seems to exist in both places. And the only person who could do that is God himself. That might seem a little fantastic to us today, because we are such smart science people, and we understand a lot of things about the physical world. Except anyone knows that there are lots of theories, particularly within theoretical physics, that speak about parallel realities and dimensions. I don't think that is too far afield for us to understand the way that they may have understood heaven as well. That there are these thin places where we feel the presence of God more than in other places. I think that the way that God reacts with us and interacts with us is something that is so very close that we can often feel it, even if we cannot see it. That's really the way they would have understood this 
rise into heaven, as not Jesus is now hiding behind the clouds, that he has somehow gone back to this other place that we just simply cannot see. That is all I will say. Think about that, and just like prayer got us way off a tangent last year, let's perhaps use this idea over the next few weeks. And if you've got a specific question, make sure you write it down. So one more thing about the ascension that's important for us within context. At the time, the Roman Empire was very strong. We know that because they're the ones who ultimately executed Jesus. When a Roman emperor died, it was believed that their soul went into heaven went into the sky. And who's in the sky for the Romans? The gods. So there is this belief, and people, there are stories actually out there that people wrote about seeing the souls go to heaven when an emperor died. And what's really helpful about the understanding of an emperor becoming a god is that whoever's son of the emperor becomes what? Son of God. Sound familiar? Wait, what? <laughs> Roman emperors told the people that they were divine. This was nothing new, right? I mean, kings, pharaohs, they were all doing this forever all saying they're somehow better than everyone else. They, they are either connected to gods or they're sort of gods themselves, and it seems like every time there's a big phase shift within a culture, the king or pharaoh or whatever gets a bigger head or something. And so what happens is that the, as these Roman emperors die, there's a story, sort of folklore around their death, that their souls, not their bodies, their souls go up into heaven and that in essence, they become a god. They, who had been on earth, humbling themselves to be among all of the humans, are now back where they should have been as a god. Why, what I want you to understand is that this did not help the dead emperor. All right? He's dead. This helped the person who seceded the dead emperor, which was often a son. Because if someone's father is now a god, and I am their son, I am the son of God. It is not an accident that the way the Gospels were told was meant to specifically use that same phrasing to understand Jesus. If we know that and we go read the trials with Pilate in the Gospels, we may get a little more nuance in the question Pilate asks of Jesus and his responses. King of the Jews, son of God language is thrown back and forth as a means of, are you challenging the actual son of God, the emperor? So the idea of son of God is not new. But what's being applied here in this story is really a one-up on what Rome is doing. So, in other words, Luke is saying, 
So your king, soul, goes to heaven, where our king's everything goes to heaven. Not only did he die and was resurrected, but everything about his renewed body, mind, spirit, soul, everything ascended into heaven. So Rome's got nothing on this son of God business. Jesus is actually the real one. Does that make more sense? All right. How am I doing? <gasps> it's only 11.05? I am so on time. <laughs> I am never on time. Okay. As we move from the ascension, we get to the selection of Matthias. As you may recall, there were 12 apostles, chief, chief disciples. That number is not accidental. There are 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 disciples of the Messiah to remake the kingdom. Okay, that is not an accident. There were plenty more people following Jesus than those 12. But the story is told in a way that makes it explicitly clear that they are renewing and remaking the kingdom of God. And so 12 matters. Except we don't have 12 right now because Judas is dead. Judas betrays Jesus and Judas dies, leaving only 11. So now there are 11 of the apostles. Luke uses the word apostle as a differentiator between disciple and apostle. In our tradition, the way we have differentiated those words is that apostles teach and disciples learn. So these apostles had been disciples and now they have become the teachers. That's typically how we differentiate apostle and disciple. These 11 apostles were incomplete. They needed a 12th. And so what they do is they identify two really good candidates to fill the 12th position, Joseph and Matthias, in order to fi find out who God actually wants. So if you turn to verse 15, we see this scene play out. In those days, Peter, right, upon this rock, build this church, so Peter the first among equals, stood up among the believers. He said, friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So in essence, what Peter is saying is he's recounting the story of Judas so that he gives the context around filling the 12th spot. He is simply saying Judas was a purpose. Judas played a role. And now Judas's role is over, and we need 12 again. Just as an aside, I should have said this at the beginning. Any idea why, if this is part two of the same story, 
there's a part two at all. Why wouldn't it have just been one big story? Luke and then Acts. It's a very easy answer. These were written on scrolls that were made from the skin of animals because the skin lasted longer than any of the paper products. Skins of animals are only so big. And so the Gospel of Luke fit on one. They just had to get a second for the rest of the story. Why that's important is because this whole preamble to the book of Acts, which is really chapter one, is meant to make sure people understand what the purpose of the story is because they may only have this one, right? You might have a community hearing this story where they don't have Luke on a scroll. They only have Acts on a scroll. And so, got to give a little context, right? This is sort of like season two, right? Beginning of season two, you've got to remember what happened in season one, right? So they give just a little bit here. And so the context around Judas is not really very important, except that it gives the people who are reading this story connection to the story that they might not physically have at the time. So, Peter gives this context, and it continues with verse 23. So they proposed two, Joseph and Matthias. Then they prayed and said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own way. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven. Aw, poor Joseph, right? Like, he was so close. Like, nobody wants to be 13, right? Joseph and Matthias, they're obviously good people, and so in order to figure out who God wants to be the twelfth person, they cast lots. They rolled the dice, literally, to see which person would be the twelfth person. This is a very interesting moment. Seems pretty arbitrary, except what did Jesus tell them just a few verses ago? Be receptive to the Spirit. And what they have done is they have interpreted that command in a way that they feel is most faithful. Here are two guys. Both would be great. How can we choose between these two? Let's let God do it. And so they quite literally cast lots, which means they rolled dice to see who was going to be in that spot. This is a very biblically-based way of making decisions. Not entirely sure how functional this is for us. I was kind of thinking through this. Now, I can, I can imagine, say, you know, many of you may be involved in the Women of St. Michael, right? Lots of excellent people. Who should be president next year? Well, I don't know. These three are great. Let's roll the dice. That's not how that works, right? I don't know that how many people would feel really good about that, although the two that maybe didn't get picked might feel pretty good. But, <laughs> right, I see lots of former presidents out there. They're like, ha, ha, ha. So this is a biblical way of making a decision, and Matthias gets picked to be the 12th person. 
I think that this could inform the way that we live if we open ourselves up to what amounts to perhaps chance, but if we are a bit more theological about it, it allows a space for God to enter into our lives. Mm, that feels a little iffy to me, right? Maybe it shouldn't. Maybe I should feel very confident about that. But I think it's perhaps, it scares me to think that I might have two good choices to make and I'm going to just kind of assume that God's going to make the dice go a certain way. I mean, I kind of feel like it's the same thing when people tell me that, you know, they, they were praying for a football team to win a game. You know, I want to say, God does not care. You know, he's not busy about your football team. So in the same way, do we really think that that's happening, or are we almost abdicating the responsibility of making a good choice? I don't know. I hate to, like, point fingers at the apostles because I feel like they're good people. But in a way— that's kind of what they're doing, right? They couldn't make a decision, they cast lots, or they knew the decision was bigger than they could make, and so they allowed God to enter in. I'll leave that for you to decide. The other side of the story that's very important is as we remake the kingdom, right? As the apostles asked Jesus just before his ascension, is this the time we're going to redo this? Jesus says, you don't know the time and the place, but what we will learn very soon, like next week, is that they are actually the ones that remake the kingdom. It's important that there be 12, because what's most important is that they understand that moving forward, they are the ones that do the work. It's very easy for us to sit around wanting God to do stuff. Most of us, most of the time, find ourselves in a frame of mind that is, reduces itself down to, I wish God would do something about that. I mean, how many of us watch the news? Well, there you go, right? I mean, <laughs> geez. I can tell the world is not easier than it was last year. I'll just put it that way. It's painful to watch what's going on, regardless of anyone's opinion, we see in front of our face all the time people getting hurt. We might like or not like decisions made that end up hurting people, but whether we like them or not, none of us like people getting hurt. And when we see the hurt, it's hard. And I think for, at least for me, I see the things that are going on in the world as just much bigger than me. What really can I do? I think what this passage seeks to remind us is that in any way we can, we can move the needle toward hope and love, toward justice, toward God's kingdom. That even if it's as simple as giving someone food because they're hungry, even if it's as simple as calling a friend because you know they're lonely. That may not solve systems of injustice, but it made a difference. One of my favorite quotes is, if you do small things with big love, you can change the world. 
I'm not sure who said that. I may have made that up, but I like it. <laughs> it sounds like something Mother Teresa would have said, so I'm going to say it's probably her. In this moment, it's important that as the story progresses, the apostles and all of the followers that join them know that they are not meant to just sit around and wait to make things happen. That with the inspiration of the Spirit that they will get, they have to leave where they are and begin to tell the story. As they change the hearts and minds of those around them, the kingdom begins to develop. The kingdom begins to be remade. This understanding that God would somehow smite the bad people and remake the kingdom in some divine cosmic moment is no longer what they think. Their Messiah has empowered them to be the change in the world. That is a radically different understanding of the way that God functions. Up to this point, God is supposed to be doing this stuff. But instead, what Jesus is leaving them with is a vision that empowers them to do that good work. For us today, I hope, hope the connection to how this functions today is not that dense. I think for us, we see stuff around, around here in this church, around our community, around our city, that we want to change. Wishing it will change is not good enough. Telling someone else about how you want it to change is not good enough. Complaining to someone that the stuff they're doing isn't the right thing to do is not going to help make the change, right? I mean, I don't know how many times, churches are great for this, but many institutions are this way. The people who finally choose to act are the ones who get criticized by the people not doing anything. That's hard. Except, you know, that's life. And those of us who choose to act, even though we may get the criticism, are actually doing God's work. Always imperfectly. But at least we're moving the needle in some way. And so as we finish this first chapter, that tees us up for the real action that's coming, I want us to go away imagining what it is that we can do how we are part of this renewal that started 2,000 years ago. That heaven is not some place, but actually a reality that we can begin to realize, that we can begin to point to, that we can help other people live into because of what we choose to do as faithful followers of Jesus. No matter how little, what we do makes a difference. And who knows when our little thing may get a big ball rolling and actually make change for good. So we've got a few minutes, and I'd love to take any questions or hear some of your thoughts. Question is, what happened to Joseph? It's actually a good question. So Joseph, <clears throat> oh, maybe I should say it this way. At the very beginning of, of chapter 1, we hear that the followers of Jesus had numbered in the hundreds. Right, I skipped that part, but it's there. That means that the 12 apostles, now 12, the 11 and then 12, were not the only ones there. 
right? I mean, we know this to be true because any, the resurrection stories were told in almost all the Gospels by women, right? Women saw the empty tomb first. Women mostly saw the messengers of God to tell them he's not here. He's gone ahead of you first. So even though the apostles were men, we know there were women there doing stuff. We also now know there were people like Joseph and Matthias who had, what do they say here? Show us one, no, I'm sorry, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he, Jesus, was taken up from us. So at least Joseph and Matthias, if not probably many others, have been there this whole time with them, traveling with them, staying with them, getting on the boat and off the boat and all the other things that they were doing, including being in Jerusalem for the trial and the crucifixion, witnessing the resurrection. They've seen all this stuff too. Now, they may not have been named up to this point. Many of them are never named. But Joseph represents all those unnamed people who have been there the whole time and who will be a part of all of the spread of the gospel that we will see in Acts. Acts is, here's something just to take away with you. Acts is a story that shifts from Peter and Jerusalem to Paul and Rome. It's almost exactly split in half. The first half is mostly about Peter and the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And it shifts halfway through to be about Paul and the other evangelists and the way that they spread the story of Jesus beyond Israel, represented as Rome. That's very important for us to understand because they don't do this alone. There are dozens and hundreds of other people who come into this group, into this fold, and partner with these named leaders to do all that work. So to answer your simple question, Joseph just becomes one of those others who make all the rest of this happen. You know, there are only so many people who can be face and mouthpiece. There are always dozens and hundreds of people who are underneath the face and mouthpiece actually getting stuff done. I know that. And so I think we all understand that there are so many, and Joseph now becomes part of them again. I kind of like the idea that even though Joseph and Matthias were picked as the two finalists, that there could have been dozens who would have easily qualified to fill this 12th spot. We are not unworthy of being that 12th as well. And perhaps that's what we could take away from this, is that just as easily as they replace Judas with a couple people over there who follow Jesus, we too are called to be part of that journey, to in essence kind of be that 12th as well. And in doing so, we become part of what has been working for 2,000 years to help redeem the whole world. So your question, why 12 is a sacred number, I'm going to tweak that to just say, in how many ways is 12 sacred? 
in scripture because I'm not entirely sure why it is. It just, it is. And we begin to see 12 with Jacob's sons, right? Jacob has 12 sons, including Joseph. And those 12 sons are the traditional heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Not, not perfectly direct, but close enough. And so you get 12 sons, then you get 12 tribes, then you get 12 apostles. It is just a sacred number. It's a sacred number outside of the Bible, too. There are some divine numbers, 40, 12, 7, 3. Those are holy numbers outside of Judaism and Christianity as well. So I think let's remember that people were inspired to write these stories. They are not historians. They are storytellers. And they tell these stories in a particular way such that the people who read or hear them know that they are holy and sacred stories. An example of this is if you look at the, oh, uh, I think it's the Gospel of John. It might be Matthew. I can't remember. The story of Jesus from Last Supper to garden to arrest to trial to death to burial happens every three hours on the hour. And the way that the story is told is at X time this happened, at X time that happened, and it's every three hours straight from the time they have dinner until the time Jesus is buried. Did it actually happen every exact three hours? I mean, no. What's the point of telling it the story that way? It's a sacred story because three is a holy number. The storytellers use those numbers so that the people who hear them just perk up and say there's something more about this story than about other stories. And so does that mean that there weren't 12 apostles? No, I think there probably were 12, 12 apostles. But could it have been structured that way because they knew that that was going to make sure people understood what was going on, that the Israel was being remade, that God's kingdom was actually being renewed because they saw and they understood 12 matters. All right, we're about time up. Thank you all very much. Looking forward to this year. I'll see you next week.